Section 14 of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter 12. Leaving Cincinnati at eleven o'clock in the forenoon, we embarked for Louisville in the Pike steamboat which, carrying the mails, was a packet of a much better class than that in which we had come from Pittsburgh. As this passage does not occupy more than twelve or thirteen hours, we arranged to go ashore that night, not coveting the distinction of sleeping in a stateroom when it was possible to sleep anywhere else. There chanced to be on board this boat, in addition to the usual dreary crowd of passengers, one Pitchlin, a chief of the Choctaw tribes of Indians, who sent in his card to me, and with whom I had the pleasure of a long conversation. He spoke English perfectly well, though he had not begun to learn the language, he told me, until he was a young man grown. He had read many books, and Scott's poetry appeared to have left a strong impression on his mind, especially the opening of The Lady of the Lake, and the great battle scene in Marmion, in which, no doubt, from the congeniality of the subject to his own pursuits and tastes, he had great interest and delight. He appeared to understand correctly all he had read, and whatever fiction had enlisted his sympathy in its belief had done so keenly and earnestly. I might also say fiercely. He was dressed in our ordinary everyday costume, which hung about his fine figure loosely and with indifferent grace. On my telling him that I regretted not to see him in his own attire, he threw up his right arm for a moment as though he were brandishing some heavy weapon, and answered as he let it fall again, that his race were losing many things besides their dress, and would soon be seen upon the earth no more. But he wore it at home, he added proudly. He told me that he had been away from his home west of the Mississippi seventeen months, and was now returning. He had been chiefly at Washington on some negotiations pending between his tribe and the government, which were not settled yet, he said, in a melancholy way, and he feared never would be. For what could a few poor Indians do against such well-skilled men of business as the whites? He had no love for Washington, tired of towns and cities very soon, and longed for the forest and the prairie. I asked him what he thought of Congress, and he answered with a smile that it wanted dignity in an Indian's eyes. He would very much like, he said, to see England before he died, and spoke with much interest about the great things to be seen there. When I told him of that chamber in the British Museum wherein are preserved household memorials of a race that ceased to be thousands of years ago, he was very attentive, and it was not hard to see that he had a reference in his mind to the gradual fading away of his own people. This led to speak of Mr. Catlin's gallery, which he praised highly, observing that his own portrait was among the collection, and that all the likenesses were elegant. Mr. Cooper, he said, had painted the red man well, and so would I, he knew, if I could go home with him and hunt buffaloes, which he was quite anxious I should do. When I told him that, supposing I went, I should not be very likely to damage the buffaloes much, he took it as a great joke and laughed heartily. He was a remarkably handsome man, some years past forty, I should judge, with long black hair, an aquiline nose, broad cheekbones, a sunburnt complexion, and a very bright, keen, dark, and piercing eye. There were but twenty thousand of the Choctaws left, he said, and their number was decreasing every day. A few of his brother chiefs had been obliged to become civilized, and to make themselves acquainted with what the whites knew. 
for it was their only chance of existence. But there were not many, and the rest were as they always had been. He dwelt on this, and said several times that unless they tried to assimilate themselves to their conquerors, they must be swept away before the strides of civilized society. When we shook hands at parting, I told him he must come to England, as he longed to see the land so much, that I should hope to see him there one day, and that I could promise him he would be well received and kindly treated. He was evidently pleased by this assurance, though he rejoined with a good-humoured smile and an arch shake of his head, that the English used to be very fond of the red men when they wanted their help, but had not cared much for them since. He took his leave, as stately and complete a gentleman of nature's making as ever I beheld, and moved among the people in the boat, another kind of being. He sent me a lithograph portrait of himself soon afterwards, very like, though scarcely handsome enough, which I have carefully preserved in memory of our brief acquaintance. There was nothing very interesting in the scenery of this day's journey, which brought us at midnight to Louisville. We slept at the Galt House, a splendid hotel, and were as handsomely lodged as though we had been in Paris, rather than hundreds of miles beyond the Alleghenies. The city presenting no objects of sufficient interest to detain us on our way, we resolved to proceed next day by another steamboat, the Fulton, and to join it about noon at a suburb called Portland, where it would be delayed some time in passing through a canal. The interval, after breakfast, we devoted to riding through the town, which is regular and cheerful, the streets being laid out at right angles and planted with young trees. The buildings are smoky and blackened from the use of bituminous coal, but an Englishman is well used to that appearance and indisposed to quarrel with it. There did not appear to be much business stirring and some unfinished buildings and improvements seemed to intimate that the city had been overbuilt in the ardour of going ahead, and was suffering under the reaction consequent upon such feverish forcing of its powers. On our way to Portland, we passed a magistrate's office, which amused me, as looking far more like a dame-school than any police establishment, for this awful institution was nothing but a little lazy, good-for-nothing front parlour, open to the street, wherein two or three figures, I presume the magistrate and his myrmidons, were basking in the sunshine, the very effigies of languor and repose. It was a perfect picture of justice retired from business for want of customers. Her sword and scales sold off, napping comfortably with her legs upon the table. Here, as elsewhere in these parts, the road was perfectly alive with pigs of all ages, lying about in every direction fast asleep or grunting along in quest of hidden dainties. I had always a sneaking kindness for these odd animals, and found a constant source of amusement when all others failed in watching their proceedings. As we were riding along this morning, I observed a little incident between two youthful pigs, which was so very human as to be inexpressibly comical and grotesque at the same time, though I dare say in telling it is tame enough. One young gentleman, a very delicate porker with several straws sticking about his nose, betoking recent investigations in a dunghill, was walking deliberately on, profoundly thinking, when suddenly his brother, who was lying in a miry hole unseen by him, rose up immediately before his startled eyes, ghostly with damp mud. Never was Pig's whole mass of blood so turned. He started back at least three feet, gazed for a moment, and then shot off as hard as he could go his excessively little tail vibrating with speed and terror like a distracted pendulum. 
but before he had gone very far, he began to reason with himself as to the nature of this frightful appearance, and as he reasoned, he relaxed his speed by gradual degrees, until at last he stopped and faced about. There was his brother, with the mud upon him glazing in the sun, yet staring out of the very same hole, perfectly amazed at his proceedings. He was no longer assured of this, and he assured himself so carefully that one may almost say he shaded his eyes with his hands to see the better. Then he came back at a round trot, pounced upon him, and summarily took off a piece of his tail, as a caution to him to be careful about what he was about for the future, and never to play tricks with his family any more. We found the steamboat in the canal, waiting for the slow process of getting through the lock, and went on board, where we shortly afterwards had a new kind of visitor in the person of a certain Kentucky giant, whose name is Porter, and who is of the moderate height of seven foot eight inches in his stockings. There never was a race of people who so completely gave the lie to history as these giants, or upon whom all the chroniclers have so cruelly libeled, instead of roaring and ravaging about the world, constantly catering for their cannibal larders, and perpetually going to market in an unlawful manner, they are the meekest people in any man's acquaintance, rather inclining to milk and vegetable diet, and bearing anything for a quiet life. So decidedly are amiability and mildness their characteristics, that I confess I look upon that youth who distinguished himself by the slaughter of these inoffensive persons, as a false-hearted brigand, who, pretending to philanthropic motives, was secretly influenced only by the wealth stored up within their castles and the hope of plunder. And I lean the more to his opinion from finding that even the historian of these exploits, with all his partiality for his hero, is fain to admit that the slaughtered monsters in question were of an innocent and simple turn, extremely guileless and ready of belief, lending a credulous ear to the most improbable tales, suffering themselves to be easily entrapped into pits, and even, as in the case of the Welch giant, with an excess of the hospitable politeness of a landlord, ripping themselves open, rather than hint at the possibility of their guests being versed in the vagabond arts of sleight of hand and hocus-pocus. The Kentucky giant was but another illustration of the truth of this position. He had a weakness in the region of the knees, and a trustfulness in his long face which appealed even to the five feet nine for encouragement and support. He was only twenty-five years old, he said, and had grown recently, for it had been found necessary to make an addition to the legs of his inexpressibles. At fifteen he was a short boy, and in those days his English father and his Irish mother had rather snubbed him as being too small of stature to sustain the credit of the family. He added that his health had not been good, though it was better now, but short people are not wanting who whisper that he drinks too hard. I understand he drives a hackney coach, though how he does it, unless he stands on the footboard behind and lies along the roof upon his chest with his chin in the box, it would be difficult to comprehend. He brought his gun with him as a curiosity. Christened the little rifle, and displayed outside a shop window, it would make the fortune of any retail business in Holborn. When he had shown himself and talked a little while, he withdrew with his pocket instrument, and went bobbing down the cabin, among men of six feet high and upwards, like a lighthouse walking among lamp-posts. Within a few minutes afterwards we were out of the canal and in the Ohio River again. The arrangements of the boat were like those of the messenger, and the passengers were of the same order of people, 
we fed at the same times, on the same kind of viands, in the same dull manner, and with the same observances. The company appeared to be very oppressed by the same tremendous concealments, and had as little capacity of enjoyment or light-heartedness. I never in my life did see such listless, heavy dullness as brooded over these meals. The very recollection of it weighs me down, and makes me for the moment wretched. Reading and writing on my knee in our little cabin, I really dreaded the coming of the hour that summoned us to table, and was as glad to escape from it again as if it had been a penance or a punishment. Healthy cheerfulness and good spirits forming a part of the banquet, I could soak my crust in the fountain with Lesage's strolling player, and revel in their glad enjoyment. But sitting down with so many fellow animals to ward off thirst and hunger as a business, to empty each creature his yahoo's trough as quickly as he can, and then slink sullenly away, to have these social sacraments stripped of everything but the mere greedy satisfaction of the natural cravings, go so against the grain with me that I seriously believe that the recollection of these funeral feasts will be a waking nightmare to me all my life. There was some relief in this boat, too, which there had not been in the other, for the captain, a blunt, good-natured fellow, had his handsome wife with him, who was disposed to be lively and agreeable, as were a few other lady passengers who had their seats about us at the same end of the table. But nothing could have made head against the depressing influence of the general body. There was a magnetism of dullness in them which would have beaten down the most facetious companion that the earth ever knew. A jest would have been a crime, and a smile would have faded into grinning horror. Such deadly leaden people, such systematic plotting, weary, insupportable heaviness, such a mass of animated indigestion in respect of all that was genial, jovial, frank, social, or hearty. Never, sure, was brought together elsewhere since the world began. Nor was the scenery, as we approached the junction of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, at all inspiring in its influence. The trees were stunted in their growth. The banks were low and flat, the settlements and log cabins fewer in number, their inhabitants more wan and wretched than any we had countered yet. No songs of birds were in the air, no pleasant scents, no moving lights, and shadows from swift-passing clouds. Hour after hour the changeless glare of the hot, unweaking sky shone upon the same monotonous objects. Hour after hour the river rolled along, as wearily and slowly as time itself. At length, upon the morning of the third day, we arrived at a spot so much more desolate than any we had yet beheld, that the forlornest places we had passed were in comparison with it full of interest. At the junction of the two rivers, on ground so flat and low and marshy, that at certain seasons of the year it is inundated to the housetops, lies a breeding place of fever, ague, and death vaunted in England as a mine of golden hope, and speculated in on the faith of monstrous representations to many people's ruin, a dismal swamp on which the half-built houses rot away, cleared here and there for the space of a few yards, and teeming then with rank, unwholesome vegetation, in whose baleful shade the wretched wanderers who are tempted hither droop and die, and lay their bones. The hateful Mississippi, circling and eddying before it, and turning off upon its southern course a slimy monster hideous to behold. A hotbed of disease, an ugly sepulchre, a grave uncheered by any gleam of promise, a place without one single quality in earth or air or water to commend it, 
such is this dismal Cairo. But what words shall describe the Mississippi, great father of rivers, who, praise be to heaven, has no young children like him? An enormous ditch, sometimes two or three miles wide, running liquid mud six miles an hour. Its strong and frothy current choked and obstructed everywhere by huge logs and whole forest trees, now twining themselves together in great rafts from the intercesses of such a sledgy, lazy foam works up to float upon the water's top, now rolling past like monstrous bodies, their tangled roots showing like matted hair, now glancing singly by like giant leeches, and now wreathing round and round in the vortex of some small whirlpool like wounded snakes. The banks low, the trees dwarfish, the marshes swarming with frogs, the wretched cabins few and far apart, their inmates hollow-cheeked and pale, the weather very hot, mosquitoes penetrating into every crack and crevice of the boat, mud and slime on everything, nothing pleasant in its aspect but the harmless lighting which flickers every night upon the dark horizon. For two days we toiled up this foul stream, striking constantly against the floating timber, or stopping to avoid those other more dangerous obstacles, the snags or sawyers, which are the hidden trunks of trees that have their roots below the tide. When the nights are very dark, the lookout stationed in the head of the boat knows by the ripple of the water if any great impediment be near at hand, and rings a bell beside him, which is the signal for the engine to be stopped. But always in the night this bell has work to do, and after every ring there comes a blow which renders it no easy matter to remain in bed. The decline of day here was very gorgeous, tinging the firmament deeply with red and gold, up to the very keystone of the arch above us. As the sun went down behind the bank, the slightest blades of grass upon it seemed to become as distinctly visible as the arteries in the skeleton of a leaf and when, as it slowly sank, the red and golden bars upon the water grew dimmer, and dimmer yet, as if they had were sinking too, and all the glowing colors of departed day paled inch by inch before the somber night. The scene became a thousand times more lonesome and more dreary than before, and all its influences darkened with the sky. We drank the muddy water of this river while we were upon it. It is considered wholesome by the natives, and is something more opaque than gruel. I've seen water like it at the filter shops, but nowhere else. On the fourth night after leaving Louisville, we reached St. Louis, and here I witnessed the conclusion of an incident, trifling though in itself, but very pleasant to see, which had interested me during the whole journey. There was a little woman on board with a little baby, and both little woman and little child were cheerful, good-looking, bright-eyed, and fair to see. The little woman had been passing a long time with her sick mother in New York, and had left her home in St. Louis, in that condition which ladies who truly love their lords desired to be. The baby was born in her mother's house, and she had not seen her husband, to whom she was now returning for twelve months, having left him a month or two after their marriage. Well, to be sure, there never was a little woman so full of hope and tenderness and love and anxiety as this little woman was, and all day long she wondered whether he would be at the wharf, and whether he had got her letter, and whether if she sent the baby ashore by somebody else, he would know it, meeting it in the street, which, seeing that he had never set eyes upon it in his life, was not very likely in the abstract, but was probable enough to the young mother. She was such an artless little creature, and was in such a sunny, beaming, hopeful state, and let all of this matter clinging close 
about her heart so freely, that all the other lady passengers entered into the spirit of it as much as she, and the captain, who heard about it from his wife, was wondrously sly, I promise you, inquiring every time we met at table, as in forgetfulness, whether she expected anybody to meet her at St. Louis, and whether she would want to go ashore the night we reached it, but he supposed she wouldn't, and cutting many other dry jokes of that nature. There was one little weazen, dried, apple-faced old woman, who took occasion to doubt the constancy of husbands, in such circumstances of bereavement. And there was another lady with a lap-dog, old enough to moralize on the lightness of human affections, and yet not so old that she could help nursing the baby now and then, or laughing with the rest, when the little woman called it by her father's name, and asked it all manner of fantastic questions concerning him in the joy of her heart. It was something of a blow to the little woman that when we were within twenty miles of our destination, it became clearly necessary to put this baby to bed. But she got over it with the same good humor, tied a handkerchief around her head, and came out into the little gallery with the rest. Then such an oracle as she became in reference to the localities, and such facetiousness as was displayed by the married ladies, and such sympathy as was shown by the single ones and such peals of laughter as the little woman herself, who would just as soon have cried, greeted every jest with. At last there were lights of the St. Louis, and here was the wharf, and those were the steps, and the little woman covering her face with her hands, and laughing, or seeming to laugh more than ever, ran into her own cabin and shut herself up. I have no doubt in the charming inconsistency of such excitement she stopped her ears, lest she should hear him asking for her but I did not see her do it. Then a great crowd of people rushed on board, though the boat was not yet made fast, but was wandering about among the other boats to find a landing place. And everybody looked for the husband, and nobody saw him. When in the midst of us all, heaven knows how she ever got there, there was the little woman clinging with both arms tight around the neck of a fine, good-looking, sturdy young fellow. And in a moment afterwards, there she was again, actually clapping her little hands for joy as she dragged him through the small door of her small cabin to look at the baby as he lay asleep. We went to a large hotel called the Planter's House, built like an English hospital, with long passages and bare walls, and skylights above the room doors for the free circulation of air. There were a great many boarders in it, and as many lights sparkled and glistened from the windows down into the street below when we drove up, as if it had been illuminated on some occasion of rejoicing. It is an excellent house, and the proprietors have most bountiful notions of providing the creature comforts. Dining alone with my wife in our own room one day, I counted fourteen dishes on the table at once. In the old French portion of the town, the thoroughfares are narrow and crooked, and some of the houses are very quaint and picturesque, being built of wood with tumble-down galleries before the windows approachable by stairs, or rather ladders, from the street. There are queer little barber shops and drinking houses, too, in this quarter, an abundance of crazy old tenements with blinking casements, such as may be seen in Flanders. Some of these ancient habitations, with high garret gable windows, perking into the roofs, have a kind of French shrug about them, and being lopsided with age, appear to hold their heads askew, besides as if they were grimacing in astonishment at the American improvements. It is hardly necessary to say that these consist of wharfs and warehouses, and new buildings in all directions, and of a great many vast plans which are still progressing, 
Already, however, some very good houses, broad streets, and marble-fronted shops have gone so far ahead as to be in a state of completion, and the town bids fair in a few years to improve considerably, though it is not likely ever to vie in point of excellence or beauty with Cincinnati. The Roman Catholic religion, introduced here by the early French settlers, prevails extensively. Among the public institutions are a Jesuit college, a covenant for the ladies of the Sacred Heart, and a large chapel attached to the college, which was in course of erection at the time of my visit, and was intended to be consecrated on the 2nd of December in the next year. The architect of this building is one of the reverend fathers of the school, and the works proceeded under his sole direction. The organ will be sent from Belgium. In addition to these establishments, there is a Roman Catholic cathedral, dedicated to the St. Francis Xavier, and a hospital founded by the munificence of a deceased resident, who was a member of that church. It also sends missionaries from hence among the Indian tribes. The Unitarian Church is represented in this remote place, as in most other parts of America, by a gentleman of great worth and excellence. The poor have good reason to remember and bless it, for it befriends them, and aids the cause of rational education without any sectarian or selfish views. It is liberal in all its actions, of kind construction, and of wide benevolence. There are three free schools already erected and in full operation in this city. A fourth is building and will soon be opened. No man ever admits the unhealthiness of the place he dwells in unless he's going away from it, and I shall therefore, I have no doubt, be at issue with the inhabitants of St. Louis in questioning the perfect salubrity of its climate and in hinting that I think it must rather dispose to fever in the summer and autumnal seasons. Just adding that it is very hot, lies among great rivers, and has vast tracts of undrained swampy land around it, I leave the reader to form his own opinion. As I had a great desire to see a prairie before turning back from the furthest point of my wanderings, and as some gentlemen of the town had, in their hospitable consideration, an equal desire to gratify me, a day was fixed before my departure for an expedition to the looking-glass prairie, which is within thirty miles of the town. Deeming it possible that my readers may not object to know what kind of a thing such a gypsy party may be at that distance from home, and among what sort of objects it moves, I will describe the jaunt in another chapter. End of chapter 12 Recording by Rick Cornwall